Prepare to be astonished. It's that time again. Let's get started. From the Clatsop County Historical Society, an adventure in history with Matt Burns and Alana Quilla. You should never be allowed to talk to people. Some people without brains do an awful lot of talking. And now, with today's adventure, it's Mac and Alana. Good evening. We're so happy you're joining us for another adventure in history. And happy summer to everyone. It's it's halfway through June. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Is, is it unbelievable? Yeah, it kind of is. It I believe fast. it. fast. Because we've been in summer hours. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I know, we love your summer hours. So, and, and we love story time. We had a great show last week. Yes, I love talking about books and reading. and We've been kind of on a book theme. Access to books, yep. We're, we're going to change that tonight, though. We are. <laughs> but we're still talking about history and information and why sort of and, doing your history and doing your uh, own research is, is good. And we're going to talk about some hard history tonight. Yes. So I'm glad that we're, hopefully, story time has put all the little ones to sleep. Yep. So, because this is this is not a pleasant subject we're going to talk about, but we'll get to it in a minute. Yeah. So, nothing to plug because it's summertime. Yep, Everything is. is just busy, 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 busy. Yes, keep on going. All folks. right. Are the kids driving you nuts yet? No, I love having them home. <laughs> do you? I do. I do. Yeah. School just right. interferes with our busy life. That's so, funny. Yeah. Excellent. All right. So uh, these are things the uh, history highlights. Things that happen tomorrow, June nineteenth. Yep. So again, always icebreakers or family dinner discussion points. Yep, you, let's do it. Fun facts. Uh, on this day in 1778, Washington's troops finally leave Valley Forge. Oh. Which is funny to me, June 19th. We always picture Valley Forge as, you know, the frozen cold. Right. I was just so, picturing that in my head. <laughs> and you're like, well, wait a minute. Yeah. So. Okay. We talk about the harsh part of Valley right. Forge more than the, all right, now we've recuperated, we're ready to go. Uh, 1867, the Emperor of Mexico is executed. Ooh. Um... 1905, I like this one. On June 19th, 1905, some 450 people attend the opening day of the world's first Nickelodeon. I saw that. That looked fun. Located in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Way to go, Pittsburgh. Right. Although, when, when I lived in Pennsylvania and we had you know some rivalry, eastern, western part of the state, some folks in the eastern part of the state call Pittsburgh Pittspuke. Oh. Them's fighting words. Yeah. But I like Pittsburgh. It's actually okay. a pretty nice city. Okay. Uh, let's see. Uh, so the, uh, it was developed by the showman, Harry Davis. The storefront theater boasted 96 seats and charged each patron five cents. Nickelodeon. Five cents. Nickelodeon's name for a combination of the admission cost and the Greek word for theater soon spread across the country. Their usual offerings included five vaude- live vaudeville acts as well as short films. By 1907... So just two years later, some two million Americans had visited a Nickelodeon. How fun. And the storefront theaters remained the main outlet for films until they were replaced around 1910 by large modern theaters. Interesting. I love that. Isn't that, that fun? That vaudeville history, too. And I don't know why I love that word, Nickelodeon. Yeah, it is a good one. Very, and I didn't realize that that was the word, or that's why that was the yeah, word. Yeah. Makes sense. It just seems fun. Yeah, it does. <laughs> it sounds fun. All right. Uh, let's see. What else? Uh, 1910, Father's Day is celebrated for the first time in Spokane, Washington. <laughs> okay. Way to go, Spokane. Th- there's more to that story, I'm assuming? I, I don't know. I didn't grab anything more. <laughs> really? <laughs> you're like, you're missing the headline. Mac. I know. Again, but I grabbed the headline. I didn't grab the rest of the story is what I didn't grab. Well, it is Father's Day today. Yes. 
So there, that's the rest of the story there, folks. <laughs> Happy Father's Day, Mac. We'll let you get away with this one. Spokane, Washington. But. All right, 1953, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg are es- mm. uh, executed for espionage. Yeah. 1978, Garfield, created by Jim Davis, first appears as a comic strip. Oh, how fun. Garfield. Yeah. He's a fat cat. He likes he eating is. lasagna. Yep. So it's, it's funny because I'm the right age. There's like all those Garfield books. Yep. And I just look back on some of those now. I'm like, really? We all thought this was funny? We all passed this around and guffawed? Yeah. He's a fat cat that likes eating lasagna. And right. he's mean. And he, yeah, and he wasn't very funny. <laughs> no, I no. Mean, it wasn't like a, it was a comic, it's but it was one day again. Yeah, it wasn't comical. <laughs> but it worked. <laughs> but good for Jim Davis. Yeah, that was good. You know, making a ton of money. I'm, I, I applaud that he found a way to do that. Uh, 2005, uh, 2006, construction on the Global Seed Vault begins. Hmm. I like this for when we have like the zombie apocalypse or something. Oh, we're having, we're gonna have global all the seed. seeds, yes, saved so we can plant stuff again, right? Uh, or just global warming. That's true. We'll be able to save. We can yeah. all have pumpkins again or something. Uh, 2013, James Gandolfi, uh, TV's Tony Soprano, dies at 51. Yeah, so young. That was shocking. Did you ever watch The Sopranos? Never. Have we had this discussion? No. I was a latecomer to it till it was totally done, and then I binge-watched it over like a couple of months, uh, a few years after it ended. And and I get why people were all excited by it. I mean, okay, I was all right with it, but I didn't get caught up in it during Isn't it run. pretty violent? It's very violent. Yeah, see, that's and lots of not gratuitous, my... A lot of gratuitous nudity and sex. Yeah. But the story not is kind style. of interesting. Okay. You know, it starts, he's the mafia guy, and he's yep. talking to his therapist. Oh, interesting. About that he's a mafia guy, and she can't disclose it because you're my psychiatrist. Right. Well, there's lots of great actors. I do yeah. appreciate a lot of the actors that are in it. But our history highlight of the day, it's a tie. The two things I think had the most Im- impact on history. 1865, the abolition of slavery is announced in Texas on Juneteenth, yep. creating Juneteenth. I like it. And I tied it because 1964, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, passes... 73 to 27. Oh, heartbreaking, <laughs> right? Yeah. So many years later, I just... Why is that yeah. 98 to 2? Right, yeah. <laughs> so that's the big uh, history highlights. And, and it, they're kind of kind of connected. Well, for sure, right? So what, did I miss anything? No, no. I saw all those same ones, and you got it. So as I was thinking about today's show, and when I saw the Juneteenth, I've had something that I've been sitting on that I want to, I want to get off my chest. Yes, it's going to be a bit of a Mac rant day. <laughs> we like those. You, well, do we? <laughs> Sometimes, I mean. So, so what this is is, is there's a lot of historians out there, and you do research, you find primary documents, and there's a very real reason, but there's this myth of the Civil War. Mm-hmm that it was about states' rights. Right. And the only way I'll even accept that it was about state rights was it was the rights for states to own slaves. It was about slavery. Every credible historian will agree. It was about slavery. So I wanted to talk a little bit about why I say that and Mm -hmm. why we know it was about slavery. Yeah. Now, that's not to say Abraham Lincoln in the North wanted to have a civil war to free the slaves, because Lincoln is famous, and a lot of mm-hmm. people have taken him to task. I, I, I will have that argument anytime, place about he's not worthy of, of being listed as one of the great presidents because he made the comment, and I'm paraphrasing, 
that if I could save the Union by freeing all the slaves, I would do so. If I could save the Union by freeing none of the slaves, I would do so. If I could save the Union by freeing some and keeping some in slavery, I would do so. It was not for him about slavery in the North. It was about making sure the Union stayed connected. Right, yeah. But for the South, it was about slavery. Right. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. And then maybe if we got time, we may talk a little bit about how this this myth of, of states' rights came about and when it came about. Right, because it, it still comes up very it frequently. Does. Um, yeah, so. Yeah, and it, it's part of also the whole discussion of the the honoring. Mm-hmm. Of the flag. Of the flag and some of the generals. Yep. And, and are we betraying somehow our history and doing wrong by taking down some of those monuments or renaming some of those bases? And that, too, is another subject, but mm-hmm. I would like to give the context of why. Let's do it. So it was about slavery. There's no question. The Civil War was about slavery. Denying the central role that slavery played in the Civil War goes against all the facts. And yet some still cling to the revisionist history argument that the South wanted independence or lower taxes or fought for states' rights. But history shows that states' rights meant the right to own slaves. So how did slavery cause the Civil War? Well, for decades before the war, Americans became increasingly polarized over the question of slavery. As the number of slaves increased in the South and decreased in the North, westward expansion created a new battleground over slavery, with slave states promoting the expansion of the peculiar institution into new territories like Missouri, Kansas, and California, Abraham Lincoln predicted that slavery would split the country, and a shocking map convinced him that slavery had to end. Finally, the abolition of slavery was a condition of the Confederate surrender at... Appomattox. Thank you. (laughs) History before, during, and after the Civil War proves that the war was about slavery. Anyone who still doubts what the Civil War was really about should listen to the words of Confederates and former slaves. Both groups agreed on this point. So I should say, we're going to read some things that are original documents or original speeches or original newspaper articles. And of course, some of the language from the 1860s we would not use normally today. Mm-hmm. So I want to make sure that people understand we're going to read it as it was. We're not going to make an updated modern version. Correct. The cornerstone of the Confederacy was white supremacy, according to its vice president. Jefferson Davis and Alexander H. Stevens governed the Confederacy as president and vice president, respectively. On March 21st, 1861, Stevens declared that the cornerstone of the Confederacy was white supremacy. In what became known as the Cornerstone Speech, Stevens introduced the new Confederate Constitution piece by piece, then turned to slavery. So this is a direct quote from the Vice President of the Confederacy. The new Constitution, that's the Confederate Constitution, the new Constitution has put at rest forever all the agitating questions relating to our peculiar institution, African slavery, as it exists among us, amongst us. The proper status of the Negro in our form of civilization. This was the immediate cause of the late rupture and present revolution. The prevailing ideas entertained by most of the leading statesmen at the time of the formation of the old constitution were that the enslavement of the African was violation of the laws of nature, that it was wrong in principle, socially, morally, and politically. Those ideas, however, were fundamentally wrong. They rested upon the assumption of the equality of the races. 
This was an error. Okay, so this is Mac now cutting in. Yeah. <laughs> so what he's just saying there. It's very clear. Is right? you know, all men are created equal. He's going, okay, back when we formed the Constitution, the, the United States Constitution, they were wrong. Right. They were misled. And we know better now is what he's saying in 1865. The races are not equal. And that's, this is the vice president of the Confederacy saying this. I continue now what he says in his speech. Our new government is founded upon exactly the opposite ideas. Its foundations are laid. Its cornerstone rests upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man, that slavery, subordination to the superior race, is his natural and normal condition. So right there. This is Mac now. Back to Mac. Because <laughs> we're reading as it was written back then. As it was spoken. And this is a pretty famous speech. The cornerstone right. speech. Right there. He's saying it's about slavery. Right. That's why we're leaving. So. Okay. So today, most professional historians, including Mac Burns, agree <laughs> with Stevens that slavery and the status of Af- African Americans were at the heart of the crisis that plunged the U.S. into civil war from 1861 to 1865. That is not to say that the average Confederate soldier fought to preserve slavery or that the North went to war to end slavery. Soldiers fight for many reasons, notably to stay alive and supporting their comrades in arms. And the North's goal in the beginning was preservation of the Union, not emancipation. For the 200,000 African Americans who ultimately served in the U.S. in the war, emancipation was the primary aim. The roots of the crisis over slavery that gripped the nation in 1860 to 61 go back to the nation's founding. European settlers brought a system of slavery with them to the Western Hemisphere in the 1500s. Unable to find cheap labor from other sources, white settlers increasingly turned to slaves imported from Africa. By the early 1700s in British North America, slavery meant African slavery. Southern plantations used slave labor, produced the great export crops, tobacco, rice, forest products, and indigo that made the American colonies profitable. Many northern merchants made their fortunes either in the slave trade or by exporting the products of slave labor. African slavery was central to the development of British North America. Although slavery existed in all 13 colonies at the start of the American Revolution in 1775, a number of Americans, especially those of African descent, sensed the contradiction between the Declaration of Independence's ringing claim of human equality and the existence of slavery. Reacting to that contradiction, the northern states decided to phase out slavery following the Revolution. The future of slavery in the South was debated, and some held out the hope that it would eventually disappear there as well. When the U.S. Constitution was written in 1787, however, the interests of slaveholders and those who profited from slavery could not be ignored. Although slaves could not vote, white Southerners argued that slave labor contributed greatly to the nation's wealth. The Constitution, therefore, gave representation in the Congress and the Electoral College for three-fifths of every slave. That's the three-fifths clause that I think we all remember from school. The clause gave the South a role in the national government far greater than representation based on its free population alone would have given it. The Constitution also provided for a fugitive slave law and made 1807 the earliest year that Congress could act to end the importation of slaves from Africa. So the Constitution left many questions about slavery unanswered, in particular the question of slavery's status in any new territory acquired by the U.S. The failure to deal fortrightly and comprehensively with slavery in the Constitution guaranteed future conflict over the issue. All realistic hope that slavery might eventually die out in the South ended when the world demand for cotton exploded in the early 1800s. 
1840, cotton produced in the American South earned more money than all other U.S. exports combined. White Southerners came to believe that cotton could be grown on with slave labor. Over time, many took for granted that their prosperity, even their way of life, was inseparable from African slavery. In the decades preceding 1860s, Northerners increasingly supported the rights of farmers and workers to enjoy the fruits of their labor and try to better themselves. Slavery did not fit with this view. Many Northerners opposed its presence in the territories, which were viewed as the birthright of, of ambitious free white men. The proposed admission of Missouri as a slave state in 1820 provoked the national debate over slavery. After much discussion, the 1820 Missouri Compromise was worked out. Under its terms, Maine was admitted as a free state at the same time that Missouri came in as a slave state, maintaining the balance between slave and free states. Additionally, Congress prohibited slavery in all Western territories lying above the latitude of 3630, the southern boundary of Missouri. The Missouri Compromise quieted agitation over slavery for only a short while. In the 1830s, concerns over the issue resurfaced for several reasons. One was the appearance in the North of a tiny number of very persistent agitators, calling for the immediate abolition of slavery, the abolitionists. Another was the bloody 1831 Nat Turner Slave Rebellion in Virginia, which just terrified white Southerners. Uh, white Southerners believed Northern abolitionists encouraged slave revolts, while Southern efforts to silence the abolitionists aroused Northern fears about freedom of speech. Later, U.S. victory in the Mexican War of 1846-48 to brought the nation vast new acreage in the West. Once again, the status of slavery in the territories became a hot issue. A new agreement, the Compromise of 1850, was required when the California territories sought to join the Union. Aspects of the Compromise included, one, admission of California as a free state, and two, a stronger fugitive slave law, three, assurance that Congress would not interfere with the interstate traffic in slaves in the South, mm. and four, prohibition of the slave trade in the District of Columbia. The compromise left open the status of slavery in the other areas won from Mexico. Then in 1854, the Kansas-Nebraska Act effectively repealed the Missouri Compromise, causing more violent disputes over slavery. Pro- and anti-slavery factions turned the Kansas Territory into a bloody battleground. But it does go back to a lot of what you were saying, though, because even these compromises, right, mm -hmm. it isn't uh, giving respect to the people that are stuck in these, uh, in these enslaved situations you know, of their life, you know, uh, all the way down to it's, children. It's kicking the real debate down the road. Right. So, I we, mean... We don't know how to get out. See, I've always kind of believed that that if there had been an, an easy economic solution for Southerners, that maybe they sure. would have taken it, but they didn't... Nobody could see a future. They didn't right. know how to do it. And their economic boom didn't help either, exactly. right? Because it also contributed to the in total United States as well. So mostly as a result of tensions over slavery, a new party, the Republicans, arose in the North in the 1850s. The Republicans made prohibition of slavery in the territories their chief issue. The party was the first in the nation's history to draw its support from one section only. Inevitably, the party aroused deep anger in the South. Attitudes in the two sections of the nation continued to harden in the late 1850s. In 1857, the U.S. Supreme Court in the Dred Scott decision ruled that African or Americans of African descent were not U.S. citizens. A failed effort to start a slave uprising in Virginia by abolitionist John Brown in 1859 spread fear and distress across the South. 
So the presidential election of 1860 was fought entirely along sectional lines. The Democratic Party finally splintered over slavery with the party fielding two candidates. The Republicans did nominate Abraham Lincoln of Illinois. His platform included government support of road and harbor projects and higher tariffs, import taxes, to protect American industry, in addition to keeping slavery out of the territories. Lincoln won the election by sweeping the northern states while failing to gain a single electoral vote in the, north, in the Deep South. Spurred by South Carolina, the states of the Deep South decided that limitation of slavery in the territories was the first step towards a total abolition of slavery. One by one, seven states, South Carolina, <laughs> Mississippi, Florida, Georgia, Alabama, Louisiana, and Texas left the Union. Lincoln hoped desperately to maintain the Union without war. When he decided to resupply the U.S. Army at Fort Sumner in Charleston Harbor, Confederate forces fired on the fort. Lincoln then asked for 75,000 volunteers to put down the rebellion. This prompted Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee, and Arkansas to join the Confederacy, and civil war had come. As southern states ceded, they declared their motivation, slavery. And again, we're going to read some things that are specific to the time period, not from Mac or Alana. We are just reading these things. But in 1860 and 61, 11 states ceded from the Union, with the new Confederate states writing documents justifying their treasonous act. South Carolina, for example, adopted the, quote, Declaration of the Immediate Causes which Induce and Justify the Secession of South Carolina from the Federal Union, uh, this was on December 24, 1860. It pointed out, it pointed to, quote, an increasing hostility on the part of the non-slaveholding states to the institution of slavery, further arguing that northern states no longer return fugitive slaves as the Constitution required. So right there, South Carolina saying it's about slavery. Right. Uh, similarly, Mississippi's secession declaration of January 9, 1861 stated, quote, our position is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery, the greatest material interest of the world, uh, end quote. Slavery, they argued, was worth defending in a civil war. Quote, its labor supplies the product which constitutes by far the largest and most important portions of the commerce of the earth. A blow at slavery is a blow at commerce and civilization, end quote. So very much about money, right? Uh, Southerners said the fight was not about independence, it was about slavery. Southerners were clear about their motivations. In 1864, a Richmond newspaper attacked the idea that the fight was not about slavery, proclaiming, quote, Our doctrine is this. We are fighting for independence that our great and necessary domestic institution of slavery shall be preserved, end quote. After the war, Confederate veterans argued the war had indeed been about slavery, in 1889, Ed Baxter declared, quote, in a word, the South determined to fight for her property right in slaves, end quote. Similarly, Confederate C Colonel John Mosby said in 1894, I always understood that we went to war on account of the thing we quarreled about with the North about. I never heard of any other cause of quarrel than slavery. So, yeah, you can read each one of the state's statements of secession. Yeah. And they're all similar. And they're, they're very upfront about it. So this, this myth of the lost cause, uh, the lost cause is an interpretation of the American Civil War that seeks to present the war from the perspective of Confederates and in the best possible terms. Developed by white Southerners, many of them former Confederate generals, in a post-war climate of economic, racial, and social uncertainty, the lost cause created and romanticized the Old South and the Confederate war effort, often dis uh, distorting history in the process. 
For this reason, most credible historians have labeled the lost cause as a myth or a legend. It is an important example of public memory, one in which nostalgia for the Confederate past is accompanied by a collective forgetting of the horrors of slavery, providing a sense of relief to white Southerners who feared being dishonored by defeat. The lost cause was largely accepted in the years following the war by white Americans who found it to be a useful tool in reconciling North and South. The lost cause was lost, uh, has lost much of its academic support, but continues to be an important part of how the Civil War is commemorated in the South and remembered in American popular culture. The term lost cause is not a product of today's historians. Rather, it appears to have been coined by Edward A. Pollard, an influential wartime editor of the Richmond Examiner. In 1866, Pollard published The Lost Cause, and, and <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> The Lost Cause, A New Southern History of the War of the Confederates, a justification of the Confederate war effort prompting the popular use of the term. So even though the phrase Lost Cause would not emerge until one year after the war ended, the reverent mythologizing of the Confederate cause became, began immediately after the war. In 1865 and 66, Confederate women transformed their wartime soldiers' aid associations into organizations bent on memorializing their lost cause, asserting their identity as wives, mothers, and daughters in mourning. Southern white women of the Ladies' Memorial Associations organized cemeteries for more than 200,000 Confederate soldiers that remained in unidentified graves on the battlefields and established the annual tradition of Memorial Days, occasions on which thousands of ex-Confederates would gather publicly to eulogize their fallen soldiers and celebrate their failed cause. Relying on the mid-19th century assumption that women were naturally non-political, ex-Confederate men recognized that women might be best suited to take the lead in memorializing the Confederate cause. In 1867, one of the first Lost Cause periodicals emerged, a new weekly Richmond newspaper called The Southern Opinion. Established only three months after the Federal Reconstruction Act by the avowed secessionist H. Rives Pollard, brother of Edward A. Pollard, and also a wartime editor of the Richmond Examiner, the paper's expressed purpose was to foster a distinctive Southern culture. Echoing much of the Ladies' Memorial Association sentiment, he repeatedly encouraged former Confederates to foster in the hearts of our children the memories of a century of political and mental triumphs and preserve the heroism and endurance of their cause. By 1868, Pollard's paper had become a mouthpiece for continued Confederate memorial efforts, especially by the Ladies' Memorial Associations. In the spring of 1869, a handful of former Confederate military leaders issued a call for a meeting to discuss the establishment of a Confederate historical society to shape how future generations would understand the war. Dabney H. Murray, Richard Taylor, Braxton Bragg, and several others formally organized the Southern Historical Society, SHS, late in April 1869. The men appointed Benjamin Morgan Palmer president and Dr. Joseph Jones secretary-treasurer and selected other prominent Confederates as vice presidents of each Southern state. Although the SHS had a regional scope, Virginia was a powerful base as a substantial number of members hailed from the state, including Maury, Governor John Letcher, General, General Fitzhugh Lee, and General Thomas Munford, Reverend William Jones, and General Early. So, you know, we're running out of time here. Yeah. But that's one of the important things. These memorials and naming bases and things like that, the big statues, look at when they went up. You know, they didn't go up in 1866, 67, 68, and the years right after it. They went up in the, the 1880s, 90s, 
and then there's a huge wave in the 1920s. Mm-hmm. And those are both time periods where things like the Klan were coming way back and were causing all kinds of havoc. Yeah. And there is a correlation here. And I'm not to say that if, if your great-grandfather was a guy in Virginia that had to sign up and he fought in the war as a private, he's not a horrible person. I'm not going to go that judgmental on everybody. But this was a rebellion. Right, yeah. <laughs> and it's very clear why they were rebelling. Now, the, the guys in the trenches might not have cared, might not have known, like we said before, why do soldiers fight? Because they have to, to support their friends, not necessarily right. because they believe in a cause. And We don't uh, give that much uh, respect to Nazis, though, That's do we? exactly right. So Yeah. So what was the Civil War about? For the South, it was about slavery. Go make some history. We'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening. Thank you for joining us for An Adventure in History. An Adventure in History is created and produced by the Clatsop County Historical Society and brought to you by KMUN.